If you've got your Bible, we're going to be looking at some different verses of Scripture today. Um, We're going to be talking about a particular theme. But before we get there, let me go ahead and tell you something that I want to to tell you about, because we're going to be looking at uh, Genesis chapter 6, Exodus chapter 2. And so you can kind of get those there. Those will kind of be the meat and potatoes of, of what we're looking at there. But let me go ahead and um, tell you something here. You know, First Assembly was founded in August of 1952. We just finished our 65th year of ministry here at the church. Can somebody say amen to that? You know, God is a faithful God and uh, a, a testimony and a light. I believe this church has never hid itself under a bushel basket. I believe that it's been a light since its inception. And uh, on our website, of course, you can go and see the heritage of the church. Um, I think I still have the video on there that just kind of chronicles some of the events in the early, in the early years from uh, the house prayer meetings that started here in Lafayette and, uh, and those kinds of things. And so you can see that. Well, we're talking about the ark, right? So remember, there are three arks basically in the Bible, if you want to look at it from that perspective, uh, we see in the Word of God. And of course, you've got the one that's associated with a flood, the one with Noah. You've got the one with Moses, uh, where his mother put him in an ark, and he floated down the Nile River. And then you have, of course, the ark of God, or the ark of the covenant. And so again, you have an ark. So you basically have, in essence, about three different arks, biblically speaking, that are transpiring. And today, I just want to bring a segment to you, something that maybe you've not thought about before, maybe you've not really looked at. And so the first one is, we're going to go ahead and go to Genesis, and this is God speaking to uh, Noah. And he says, Noah, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, or Achaia wood, some translations would say. And it says, you shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, pitch, just to tell you what that is, that is a, it's an oil-based product. Some people would try to argue that the oil-based product, any oil-based products did not come until after the flood because that's where fossil fuels and all that started, after the flood. But how many of you know that God is the creator of all things? And so if the Bible says that it was covered in pitch, how many of you know that it was covered in pitch? How many of you know that, that we seem to want, or there's an element always that always wants to argue? If you say black, it's white. If you say up, it says down. Come on, if you say left, it says right. How many of you know what I'm talking about? I mean, there's always going to be that element. I was talking to someone yesterday in the last couple of days about things that um, people have told them, some things that are being said. And I said, let me tell you something. You need to grab hold of what God is telling you. You need to go forward. You need to go forward with what you know God is saying. It is great to do research. You learn things that you never knew before. That's why I think superficial Christianity is not real Christianity. Because by its very nature, it's surface level. God is so much greater. He doesn't come and live on top of us. He lives inside of us. So God, by his very nature, goes inside. He doesn't just stay on the surface. What he does on the surface is convict us when we don't know him. And then we come to a place where we know him, right? So he says, I want you to cover it in pitch, but I want you to create an ark. All right, let's go ahead and look at what he told Moses' mother. It says, the woman conceived and bore a son. Now, they were of the tribe of Levi, by the way. And it says, when she saw that he was beautiful. You know, I have to tell you that I think that this is a wonderful tribute to how she looked at her son and said, he's beautiful. 
I think that that's a wonderful statement of not only how God viewed Moses, but views us, and how every mother takes a look at their child and says, he or she is beautiful. And he said, and she hid him for three months. Now, how many of you know that three months you can kind of coordinate children and maybe keep them quiet a little bit, but after three months and they're growing and doing things, how many of you know you can't hide them anymore? And you see, at this time, we had a pharaoh that wanted to kill all of the firstborn male children, and so they were going about doing that. And so it says, but she could hide him no longer. She got him what was called an ark. It can, some translations say wicker basket, but it says an ark and covered it with tar and pitch. How many of you know that that's awesome? So here we have the ark of God in the sense of, the, of Noah, and now we have Moses being put in an ark that's covered in tar and pitch. All right? She put the child into the Nile, set him among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Crocodiles in the Nile are very well known, okay? We're, we're talking, you know, 30 foot long, these big crocodiles that hang out in the Nile. And so what I want you to, to take a look for a mother to put her child in a, you know, fresh meat, if I could say it that way, and put him in an ark and put him down the Nile, how many of you know that that was a trust in God? You see, every parent that takes their children and sets them sailing, how many of you know that that's an important thing? Whether they're young and they're just starting to run and you stand back and watch them run into things, or when they're 18 and you're letting them go, or whatever the case may be. As they get older, there's different stages that you release them more and more and more. And that's what God wants us to do is to learn how to trust him in that. And then we have this. Let me go ahead and read this one to you. So this is where God sends out the children of Israel. Moses, of course, survives that, and he becomes the leader. Uh, he grows up in Pharaoh's household. God has a sense of humor. But then he goes out and he finds himself on the backside of a mountain because he wants to find out what his heritage is as a man who was from Jewish heritage. And God tells him, construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among you according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, so you shall construct it. I want you again to think about it. God is concerned about furniture. God is concerned about the things that are inside of it. God is concerned about every piece of a sanctuary or a tabernacle or a place that says that it will house and the presence of God. And he says, you shall construct it. And you shall construct an ark of Achaia wood, two and a half cubics long and one and a half cubics wide and one and a half cubics high. Now, I'm not trying to get into the size of cubics or those kinds of things. What I want to do is I just want to talk about the three arks that we just looked at. When it talks about Noah, it talks about building an ark, and he built it for many, many years. I want you to know that the fact that his family was able to come with him and get on the ark with him is pretty amazing when you think about it. He was ridiculed each and every day for building this crazy ark. What are you building that for? Well, God told me to do it. <laughs> okay. But they ridiculed him every day. The Bible says that people were, the earth was covered with people who had wicked hearts. And God says, I've had enough. And he says, I want you to build this ark, and I want you to put animals on it. 
two by two, and seven of each of the clean animals. God gave him an understanding of what that was. And you and your family get on this ark. And then we know that the flood came, 40 days and 40 nights. And of course, we know multiple days where it subsided and then where he landed. Then we also know, then we see, that Moses was put in an ark. Again, covered in pitch. And then we see that God instructed Moses as he got older to build an Ark of the Covenant. Now, what I want us to see is that when it comes to Noah and Moses, what they were, they were both in, the definition in the Hebrew language, because that's in the Old Testament in Hebrew, the word means a box. It's kind of funny. Uh, we don't want to put God in a box, but yet the very definition of an Ark is a box. And when it comes to the Ark of the Covenant, where he said, the Ark of the Covenant, that I want certain elements inside of it. The Ark of the Covenant was pretty much made famous in that sense worldwide in the Indiana Jones series. I remember the first Indiana Jones. I mean, that was pretty cool, man. I mean, I wasn't a believer, and uh, uh, that was a pretty cool thing. But it talked about the Ark. You don't want to, everybody walked away from that movie saying one thing, you don't want to mess with the Ark. What was interesting was, was the character, Indiana Jones, knew better than to mess with the ark. We under, he had an understanding just because of the understanding of who God was and what the history and heritage and the documents and the Bible, what it said about God and his ark. So according to that movie. But you see in the other ones it means a box, but in the Ark of the Covenant it means a box with an additional meaning. So it means a box, and it has an additional meaning that says to gather. So we see that God is saying, I want to build an ark that's a box that holds something, but then when it comes to the Ark of the Covenant, it wants to gather. So let's go into the New Testament so we can look at this together. In the book of Luke, chapter 17, it says they were eating and they were drinking. Now, Luke is redefining here what God had to say about Noah and what was going on. And we've heard this maybe uh, quoted many, many times. I, I did even before I was a Christian. It says, they'll be eating, they'll be drinking, they were marrying, and they were giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. You know, actually, that book, The Paradigm, talks about in some degree, huh, Doc, because I know you read it, speaks about how we just go about our daily business as God is doing his business. We seem to be oblivious to what God is doing. And that book really speaks to bringing to the forefront as God is moving and shaking and doing things. And I believe that right here, Noah, listening to God, building this ark. And it says, they entered the ark and the flood came. So he built the ark. He built that box. Now let me go ahead and look at Hebrews chapter 9. Now this is the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the ark of the covenant. Now we already know in the Old Testament the definitions but let's look at the Ark of the Covenant. And what's beautiful about the Ark of the Covenant is that it says that when they built the Ark of the Covenant, having a golden altar of incense in that area, and it says, and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which, now listen, this is what was put inside the Ark of the Covenant. And this is confirmed in the book of Kings and other places in the Old Testament. It says that there was a jar or certain translations will say a vessel. So in other words, look at it as, as something that holds the manna. So it says there's a jar or a vessel that holds the manna because it has to be in something. 
So the manna represents the bread and the life of God, right? In the Old Testament, when God fed them in the wilderness, they went every day and got bread. And then it says on the Sabbath, they would get enough bread the day before to carry them through so that they would rest and meditate on the Lord and let the the Lord speak to their heart as they would gather. If you were being led every day by fire or a cloud by, you know, a cloud by day, a fire by night, how many of you know you'd be thinking about God a little bit? I've told the story about how we were looking for symbols for, for my drum set, actually even some of the symbols that are still on it. Those symbols, I went looking, and God began to give me a vision of where to go to find the church that they were in. Lost as a goose out in the middle of New Iberia, in Iberia Parish somewhere, and God gave me a vision of exactly where to go. That's what the Bible says that he did. By day, the cloud would move, and they would go with it, and the fire would come down, and they would go with it. I know it, I mean, I wasn't cloud and fire, okay, but I know what it is for God to lead you and say, go here, don't go there. I know what it is for God to do that. And then it says, and Aaron's rod was with it. Now, Aaron was Moses' brother, and Aaron was also of the tribe of Levi. Moses was of the tribe of Levi, Aaron was of the tribe of Levi, and that started the Levitical priesthood. So what we've got is we've got manna that's bread. We've got the priesthood that represents the standing in the gap between God and man. And then look what we have. And the tablets are the two tablets that Moses had, which is the Ten Commandments. Tables are the tablets of the covenant. In Jewish tradition, and I'll just say it tradition, uh, they hold to this strongly, that they claim, and this was passed down. They claimed that when God wrote the tablets, when he wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger, the Bible says, in those two tablets, it says that when they looked at it, that, that actually is what started a language. So to be a nation, some things you have to have. You have to have a government, you have to have a language, and you have to have a people. And that, they say, is when the Jewish nation actually started because that gave them now a written language that they could start with. That was the beginning right there. But they claim that the tablets, you could look at them this way and read them. And if you turned them the other way, you could read them. In other words, they were identical on both sides, yet God had inscribed right through them. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty cool. Now, we see people trying to do those kinds of things with special effects. But God, you know, how many of you know God understands what special effects are? He started with those things. So the tablets of the covenant. So what do we have? We have manna, which is bread. We have the, the rod, which represents the priesthood, the, the authority of the priesthood. And then we have, right, we have the covenant, which is the law, which is the things of God, the instruction of God, the word of God. Now, as we look at an ark as a vessel that holds the man and holds the other things, the ark of the covenant, how many of you know that that represents who we are? Because you see, how many of you have, if you're a believer, how many of you have the bread of life living inside of you? You see, we have the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. There is nothing greater than to smell fresh bread in the morning. You know, I went to elementary school, most of my elementary school years until Lisa and I met in the seventh grade. That was later. But when I was real young, I went to Mo Elementary. And that building, of course, burned down with the cafeteria some years back. But Man, everything. It was like taking 10 grandmas and they would cook lunch every day. Now, how many of you want to go to that school? I mean, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, you'd go eat, man. It was like, you know, they'd have to to kick me away. I want more. I want more. I mean, I remember baked chicken and, okay. 
Okay, one of the things, though, that we would remember is, man, those fresh rolls that were... Now, I was a little kid, so it took like a... Remember the whole thing, it takes two hands to handle the Whopper? Remember that? I remember trying to prove that when they first came out. They were actually pretty big hamburgers, but I remember going, no, I can eat it with one, just because I had to prove it. But those were big things, those rolls, man, in those days, those things had to be that big. But is there anything that smells greater than that? And then maybe fresh butter that just kind of melts and drizzles and rolls off the side of it as it melts. And, but you see, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And I don't think it's any accident that bread smells like that. I don't think that's any accident. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life and that he lives inside of us. Now watch this, the authority of the priesthood. Now we know that Jesus is the high priest that stands between God and man. That's what the New Testament says. He's a mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says. But the book of Peter, the epistle of Peter also says that we are a priest to our God, that we have the ability to approach God. So you've got the ability to approach God. You've got Jesus standing in the gap, and then we have the ability to approach our Heavenly Father. It says, come to the throne of grace boldly in time of need. So guess what? Not only do we have Aaron with the Levitical priesthood, we are a priest unto our God, the epistle of Peter says. You see, we have the ability to approach God, but we also have Christ as our, as our chief shepherd who is our intercessor, who is our, our high priest under the order of Melchizedek. If you want to go study, go look at Hebrews chapter 7, and, uh, and you can see that also in Genesis, and you can also see that in Psalms 103. You'll have to do a little study. I'll leave that alone as that is right there. But Aaron's rod was budded, and the tables and or the tablets of the covenant. And so we have the word of God. How many of you knew that the word of God has been given to us and it has the ability to reside inside of us? The word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In other words, the word of God has got to get inside of us. So when you look at the ark of the, the ark of the covenant, what does it have? It has everything that's inside of us is inside of that ark. You're getting that? You see that? So what I want you to know is that we see arcs in the Old Testament, but when we come into the New Testament, without starting a new doctrine here, we have the ability to house those very things at the Ark of the Covenant. How many of you are glad that you have a covenant with inside of you and with God that says, come on, you have a covenant with him? Is that awesome? So I want to show you a couple of pictures. It's it's so awesome that Ron and Mark are here today, and Karen, and Skyla. I'm so glad that you're here. So we're talking about arcs, we're talking about pitch, we're talking about them assembling them with a K of wood, gopher wood, putting them together. So let me go ahead and show you a picture that I found looking yesterday. So the one on the left, this is a ship called the Raw Faith. Now the one on the left, you can see, in fact, let me just go ahead and just show you this picture real quick. Can you see the multiple layers of wood? I tried to lighten it up enough, but the pitch is so dark, it's hard to really identify it. So on the left side is one of the sons of the builder, Captain McKay. That's one of his sons covering the ship in pitch, okay? And you can see the layers of wood. You can see that the first layer below is dark, and then you can see a new layer, and he's covering the new layer of wood. Now, as we know that the ark was built that Noah built, that he built it with gopher wood, and he did layers of wood that, as God instructed him. And then he would cover it with pitch, and he would establish it. 
And what I want to show you this morning is, is that I believe that God did something miraculous that I never even connected, Mark and Ron, and church. Because the reason I say Mark and Ron is because us three were on this ship together. And we went through this tragedy, <laughs> this drama on the high seas in 2006. In fact, I pulled up the airplane tickets. I pulled up all kinds of emails. I pulled up all kinds of information in the last couple of days on this, going back and remembering all the, many of those things. And you see, there it is covering it in pitch, and then there's the sun putting another layer of wood. You can see how he has, the, so if he missed a nail, they, they were driving big, long nails in it. If he missed those nails, he wouldn't, you know, destroy the wood. Or They built this with white oak, three layers of white oak staggered with pitch on each layer. Now, to go ahead and tell you, some of you have, have heard it more than once. But just to tell you, if you've not heard it, in 2006, us three went on this ship to help them sail it from Maine, from Jonesport, Maine, down to New Jersey. The only problem is we never made it to New Jersey. We were caught in a storm. We were 50 miles offshore in the Atlantic. How many of you know the Atlantic's a, kind of a little scary thing? <laughs> You're like a little pencil tip in the Atlantic, okay? And we're 50 miles offshore. So picture leaving I-10 and driving to Baton Rouge, basically. That's the distance we were offshore, off the land. And so as we were out there, kind of a, a small northeaster came through and broke one of the masts during the day in the afternoon and then broke the other two masts. I was reading some of my notes as I was writing it down. I forgot that, you see, the wind was blowing us from side to side like this at 30 degrees this way, then center, 30 degrees back and forth. So basically goes 60 degree, about a 60 degree move. How many of you know that's a crazy thing? And I forgot, Mark, I was reading this, Ron. It said the mast were taking the stress. I totally forgot about that, how the wind was taking the mast and bringing the sails and bringing the mast over. And I made a note of that about how dramatic it was bending them. And then, of course, later in that evening, just before dark, the other two masts uh, broke, and we were in that storm for a number of hours, and the Coast Guard had to come rescue us and all of those things. My point is, is that before I went, and I have this all documented, this is all written down, this isn't after the fact, that I have documented that the Lord spoke to me that if, I, if we went on this ship, as I was reading that, I was realizing that the Lord had spoken, said, Tommy, if you go on this voyage... I will teach you things from the Word of God that you would never otherwise understand. Now, how many of you know that when God tells you something like that, I've learned something over the years. When God says stuff like that, you start going, okay, I want to go, but it's not looking good. <laughs> what, what I'm saying is, is when God challenges you like that, there's always an adventure that goes with it. And there's always a challenge. Now, Ron, Mark, I don't think we ever want to do that again, right? Mark, now Mark's saying no. Uh, Ron's going, no, no, no. But I wouldn't change anything. In other words, I wouldn't reverse it. Do you all understand what I'm saying? In other words, the lessons I learned, the things that we gleaned out of it, the things that God taught us by his word, the things that he did in the next days and weeks and months, I would never change that for anything. You see, every adventure with God is just that, an adventure. And God says, I have this. Now, you say, Tommy, so why are you showing these pictures? I'll tell you why I'm showing these pictures. Because I believe that God 
had a total understanding in saying, Tommy, I'm going to put you in an ark because I'm going to be with you because there's things I want to teach you. I'm going to tell you my life, not just because of the experience, but the word of God, I want you to understand something, has never been the same, the things that God just opened up to us and as we shared them with the church. Now, let me show you. What I did was we came in on the, we finally got home, Ron, I think it was a Saturday. That Sunday was Mother's Day, and I left on Monday for an extended fast, just a water fast. And when I was in there, the Lord spoke to me because we were still in Maine, and that night when we finally got in and were rescued and all that, we were in a hotel there in Maine, and the Lord gave me an open vision of a, of a ship with three broken masts, and he said, these are the three foundations the church has removed. And I immediately, while I was in, because I was in prayer, I said this, the Bible prayer, and the Lord rebuked me openly, severely. And he said, do not. I mean, he said it. In other words, when God talks to you, he'll talk to you and go, Tommy, I love you. I'm, I'm caring for you. And then there are times when God goes, dude, I need your attention. See, that's how God talks to all of the, he talks to us and what he's trying to communicate But what was happening was, is I was assuming I already knew what God was saying. And he said, do not, these are exact words, do not assume to know what I mean. Seek me. Does not the Bible in Matthew 6.33 say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and he will add? You've got to seek first. That's one of the first things. We've got to be willing to listen. God's been speaking those. We could be in a series here, depending on how God brings this along. I've been meditating on that. It very well could be in the sense of listening and the different ways that God wants to speak to us. But in the midst of that, he said, do not assume what it is. And so with that said, I didn't. And I went and I fasted and prayed. And and I I remember that very vividly. I know exactly where I was, all the things that I did. And the Lord gave me this verse, Isaiah 33, verses 21 through 23. I want you to look at it with me. It says, There the majestic ones, the Lord, will be for us a place of rivers and wide canals on which no boat with oars will go. You see, oars represent man's strength every time. When they threw Jonah over the side of the boat, it says that they tried to oar themselves to the shore. God says, Nope. He kept them in the boat. In fact, almost sank the boat because they were disobeying him. God said, I said, throw him over. When Mark chapter 6, when Jesus tells the disciples to go to the other side, the first thing they do is they jump inside of a boat and they grab oars and start going across. And they, they row all night and don't even move because the winds were contrary, the Bible says. You see, oars always represent men's strength. The book of Ezekiel talks about the ships from Ethiopia, and it talks about how they had big oars and they could pull them in from Egypt. He says this, on which no boat with oars will go, and on which no mighty ship will pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king. Now, he says he will save us. Your tackle hangs slack, and it cannot hold the base of its mast firmly, nor spread out its sail. Now, let me tell you what is significant about this verse is that when you look at verse 21, that the place of rivers, wide canals on which no boat with oars will go, 
That's one verse. The next verse that it talks about, you know, no mighty ships will pass. The next verse, 22, says, For the Lord is judge, the Lord is lawgiver, the Lord is king. And then it jumps right back in verse 23, and it says, Your tackle hangs slack. In other words, the f- verse 21 is nautical. Verse 22 is spiritual in the sense of it is, it is a biblical precedent about who God is. And then verse 23 is back nautical. If you just read these verses without some understanding, this makes no sense. God is judge, God is lawgiver, God is king means nothing in connection to the two nautical comments. It doesn't connect. There's nothing connects there unless you begin to do a year-long study on verse 22. And then you begin to realize this, that when from England, when they came to establish Jamestown, that they stood on the shore, and they shoved a shaft in the ground and quoted verse 22 and said, God is judge, God is lawgiver, God is king. And that is the first founding of using those scriptures here in the United States on the shore saying this is going to establish who God is here in the Americas before it was even the Americas. And when you begin to look at verse 21 and verse 23, God says there are three foundations that the church, not the world, the church of Jesus Christ has removed. He told me, he said, Tommy, they no longer think I'm judge. They no longer think I'm lawgiver. They no longer think I'm king. I'll never forget, when I finally got back from the fasting time and all of that, I was driving in town, and I was trying to get a hold of what God was saying. So we've removed the fact that we think you're judge, lawgiver, and king. Now, you got to understand, that's a heavy thing to take that God is saying. That's 2006. Think of where we are today in the sense of the church and what's happened. And the church is a broad thing. Let me tell you one of the things, and I appreciate the prayer time because what we're saying is, God, you're judge, lawgiver, and king. So the Lord showed me this. I drove by a church, and on the sign of the church, now watch this, I just returned an extended time of fasting. God gives me these verses, and I'm driving down the road, and I said, Lord, I'm just meditating, going, Lord, you need to bring some clarity and understanding of what I want to begin to understand why those foundations, how did those foundations remove? What do you really mean? And so I'm driving down the road, and there's a church, and there's a, a church sign that's up, just like we have a church sign. And on it, it says, Jesus didn't come to judge, but to save. Now, how many of you know that that is true? But how many of you know that's not the whole truth? Because the rest of the verse says, and he comes to save, he doesn't come to judge because you've already been judged. That's what the Word of God says. We need a Savior because we've been judged. We don't need a non-Savior if, we've, if we're all good. Why, do we, why did Jesus go to the cross? Why do we need Him? Why do we need any of that? And when I read it, I just read it, Jesus didn't come to judge but to save. I mean, literally, I'm driving, and I looked. And how many of you know that when God illuminates something, I, I did a double take, and I looked at it again, and He said, that's what I mean. See, they no longer think that I'm willing to look at them and to see their life. Now, at that very moment, the fear of God began to come inside of my life, not because of my own personal life, but because of the magnitude of his statement. And you see, the magnitude of the statement is is that God is judge, God is lawgiver, and God is king, first and foremost. And he sent Jesus to bring salvation so that we could walk by the law that he gives 
so that we could recognize him as king and so that we could allow the judgment that came upon Jesus to be taken off of our life. It's important that we get this because Jesus is saying, I came for a reason to transform lives. I didn't come to just add me on the top of everything else we believe. I came to be a king in your life. I'm the one who is the plumb line that judges what is right and not right. Not popular consensus. I am the one who drops the plumb line and says yes or no. I'm the one. And he weeps. I've shared numerous times where God brought me to the judgment seat. This wasn't a dream. This was a day vision. And God brought me to the judgment seat. And what people don't understand, I saw God, I saw someone come through the judgment seat. I saw a transaction, if I could call it that. Let me tell you something. There was a judgment that took place, and I saw God weep uncontrollably as the sentence was passed. Wept uncontrollably. We don't have a God that sits up there and takes joy over what's going on around us. We have a God who weeps over the very people that he created, that he sent his son for. And God wants to remind us this verse. You say, Tommy, that's only Old Testament. By the way, that's through from Genesis all the way to Revelation. God is judge, lawgiver, and king, which I didn't realize until I took a year to study it. It's everywhere. It's all throughout the word of God. I'm judge, lawgiver, and I'm king. I had a judgment on my life, and there was a king who said, I'm going to stay that judgment. Aren't you glad that he did that in your life, those who know him? If, if we sit here today and go, man, I don't really need Jesus. I was doing pretty good on my own. Then we've made a grave mistake. I'll, I'll tell you right now, you know, the song that says a, he saved a wretch like me, both hands, and I can't do f- all both feet because I'll fall. But that was me. I have no problem saying I was an absolute wretch, a stinky, no good wretch that lived from me and me alone. And Jesus came and changed that. And he became my king. And he said, Tommy, as a king, I want you to enjoy my kingdom and all the things that are inside of it, all the blessing, all the things that I want to give inside of you, all the freedoms and all the promises of eternity. Why do we partake of communion? Because we remember what? that Jesus went to the cross. They broke his body. He shed his blood that we may be able to walk uprightly and secure in our Lord. 